You're listening to the Monocle Daily First Broadcast on the 16th of January 2024 on Monocle Radio. Artificial intelligence takes over Davos, but as the world's biggest companies at the World Economic Forum declare the future is AI, is it a bright one or will it worsen inequality? I'm Tom Webb. And I'm Carlotta Rabello. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you live from our studios here at Hub Culture Chalet Pavilion in Davos. I'm Carlotta Rabello. And I'm Tom Webb. Our guests, Juliet Lindley, Juan Lavista Ferez, and Dr. Joe Arvai, will unpack day two of the annual meeting for us and delve into the prevalence of AI in this year's edition. Plus, Spain's former foreign minister on why 2024 is a key year for voters all around the globe. Stay tuned. All that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily, live from Davos. This is the Monocle Daily. It's day two of this year's World Economic Forum annual meeting, a day marked by key speeches by Chinese Premier Li Qiang, EU Chief Ursula von der Leyen and Ukraine's Volodymyr Zelensky, to name a few. How have you found the day so far, Tom? It has been very sunny. It's finally come out and the snow is melting just slightly, still 20 inches on our rooftop as we speak. You mentioned the Chinese Premier Li Qiang. Now, he was talking today about the Chinese economy. It's open for business and this was highlighted in its potential for foreign investment. We are seeing so many of the Chinese delegation out and about, so much more than last year. And today I actually caught up with Henry Wang, who's the founder of the Centre for China and Globalisation. He was very much echoing these comments that the world needs to pull down barriers to competition and trade. And I asked him if there was going to be any high-level U.S. meetings. His answer was the same as Anthony Blinken. No plans to meet, although Washington would continue its high-level engagement with Beijing. That interview will be on tomorrow's briefing because we are here all week broadcasting from our pop-up radio studio at the Hub Culture Chalet Pavilion on the promenade just across from the Congress Centre. Well, let's turn then to our panel today. I'm delighted to say that we are joined here in the studio by the journalist Juliet Lindley and by Juan Lavista, who's the Vice President and Chief Data Scientist of the AI for Good Lab at Microsoft. Welcome both to the programme. Thank, Thank you. You. Now, you were both together today earlier. Can you talk about why your session? Can we talk about why, Juan? Of course. <clears throat> well, I was moderating a panel on which Juan very kindly was taking part and he was the sole representative of the private sector because my other two guests were the head of the International Telecoms Union, the head of the International Standardizations Union and a professor of computer science at the ETH in Zurich. But basically the reason he came was this this was Geneva Day. We may be in Davos but there's always one day a week that is dedicated at the WEF to Geneva and to the international organizations, to the humanitarian organizations that are based in this diplomatic hub, if you will, of a city. And um, we were just trying to unpack all of us together on how AI can be leveraged um, to help drive the SDGs, the UN Sustainability Goals. And you enjoyed yourself on he the loved panel it. No. very well. <laughs> it, was a, it was a very good panel. It was a really very good discussion, uh, particularly like the, 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 the person that leads of the ITU, Doreen, 
made a very good point uh, that in order for us to have like the, the discussion on inequalities, it starts, but not just the inequalities in AI, but actually inequalities in access to electricity, inequalities in access to broadband. And those are the ones, that's, that's clearly an area that for us as Microsoft, we are also concerned. Like we need to make sure that everybody has access, can have access to this type of technology. But in order to have access, the first thing is we need to recognize that the world still have people that live without access to electricity and a significant portion that live without access to broadband or internet. So. Now, this is, of course, the prevalence of AI dominating many of the discussions both inside and outside the Congress Centre, with almost half of the houses on the promenade dedicated to tech companies. This year also welcomes the first ever AI house at the World Economic Forum. Now, artificial intelligence as a driving force for the economy and society is a key theme at the World Economic Forum's annual meeting. But what does it actually mean? I think it's important to recognize that AI is not new, correct? So we've been, like AI is something that exists for the last 70 years, but for the last 30 years we've been using, and people have been using AI in production. I think that suddenly with the access to GBD type of technology, these have become uh, uh, accessible for for a significant portion of the world. And of course, through these they have it has been become a, a more um, a more mainstream and and people have seen many many people have experienced for the first time the power that this technology can have in in society now one thing you mentioned earlier juan was of course uh, the relationship between ai and inequality and you know leading economists here at davos released their survey yesterday pointing at artificial intelligence increasing inequality what are your thoughts on that assessment i, I read the report and i actually had a very good conversation with people that have worked in that that organization too is like for two few things. The, f the first one is, if you look at the history of technology, technology has changed the way we work. But technology has been a net creator of jobs since, like, since like for the last 180 years. Uh, when we when you look at AI again, considering that AI has been used in production for the last 30 years, yes, AI has changed the way we work, but it hasn't been any like uh, significant impact. I'm not saying we we, we don't need to be concern about this but but again i am pretty confident that i'm pretty sure like that the same history that has happened until now whether technology changes the way we work but like we are not in any way shape or form uh, uh thinking of these scenarios where suddenly a, a lot of people are affected in reality what is, what is happening and i would say is kind of a bit of, on the reverse the, the, if you look at the population, particularly in the global north, a lot of these countries are experiencing a decline in the working age population. Not only a decline in working age population, but you have the population of these countries have become more and, 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 and more old in many ways. And uh, with these, you need to, we need to make sure that we have a ways to support society and you know that the only way to do that when you have a working age population that is declining is increasing productivity and ai has the potential to increase productivity and that's why we are so keen but we certainly like i, I certainly don't see an, a scenario where yes i do think the way we work will change and it's already changing like uh, but clearly not uh, i i don't see any of these scenarios where this is going to affect the percentage of people that is being... But it's going to affect uh, employment. Surely a lot of people are not going to be able to retrain or either they are too old to or they're not in a position and there are going to be job losses. 
that's what so many people worry about. I, I think that, so let me, let me give you an example. In, back in the, in the 1960s, uh, there was a significant amount of people that were affected, like the, the, there was a significant amount of people that would work in the telephone companies, like making switches, correct? So at that point, if you wanted to make a call from New York to LA, it would cost you, like in, in today's dollars, roughly $20 a minute. And not only twenty dollars a minute, it would take like a few hours to make that connection because you need to basically have someone that would connect one after the other. Correct? And yes, as soon as you had a, 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 the technology that did these switches automatically, a lot of people lost those jobs. But if you look at history, we have today, at least in countries like the US, an unemployment rate that is significantly lower than you had 40, 50 years ago. Right? Through those years, a lot of things change, a lot of the type of work we have. The same of the person that was managing the elevator. Uh, what, what has happened is that a lot of these jobs, you really don't need, like, 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 like if, if your job, if you, if, like as humans, we are an, an incredible, um, amazing uh, 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 humans, like just their job is just clicking the going up and down of the elevator. It's certainly, like what we what we want is to try to remove a lot of those tasks and make humans do what we are best for. And th this is about our creativity, about our power, about our the way that we make decisions. So, yes, I do think AI is changing the way we work, but changing in the way we work because it's making us more productive and making the whole society more productive. One thing that will definitely change through AI, if I look, if like until. Uh, this is something that we discussed today in the panel, but again, AI has been used for the last, in production for the last 30 years, but a very small portion of the world actually had access to that power. Like 0.5% of the world codes, know how to mm. code, and within those 0.5%, even a, a much smaller portion, like less than 10% of those, use the AI technology. With advances like GPT, we suddenly have Two things that are happening that I think is, is crucial. First, any like we can now code in our language, whether it's English, whether it's Spanish, whether it's Portuguese, you have the ability to code, like to convert your language into coding. Something that, like, even if we had, like, in our dream scenario where we help people become coders, we don't see that number going from zero to 5.5% that is today to a significantly higher number. But if we are allowed, to, if we if we enable the people to code in their own language, yes, suddenly everybody has that power. And the same happens with AI. Suddenly we, for the first time, people are experiencing how to use AI. And for, for that, like going back to the original thing, if you had access to the internet, if you had electricity, then you can use this technology. But the first job in order for us to avoid disparities is to make sure that those those two things, those building blocks that are crucial, like we have, uh, Doreen from ITU mentioned today, is 2.6 billion people in the world that do not have access to uh, internet today, and like yes, those people, like like what we have, what we have seen is that if you use AI. And if you're comparing a person that is using AI with a person that is not using AI, that there will be a difference between a big difference in productivity between those, those people. So we not, we need to make sure that everybody has access to this technology. In order for us to have access to this technology, we need to to have like the build these building blocks. No, I love your optimism. 
But as someone in the, in the audience then said, okay, this is all fine and wonderful, but there is a flip side. What do you worry about the most about this big AI drive? So I, I think it's important to have, this technology provides a lot of power. I think we need to use it responsibly. And for us, it's, in, it's important, sorry. Uh, I, I think it is important to use this, this technology in a responsible way. Microsoft has been doing this for the last even much older than at least six or seven years, where we have our Office of Responsible AI, and we have like very clear uh, indications on how we want to make sure that this technology is responsible for us, and also as a blueprint for society. And you brought in Trevor Noah. Didn't you? We brought Trevor Trevor, Noah. Trevor Noah is our chief, uh, a, a chief questioning officer. Yeah, exactly. yes. We have our chief questioning officer, yes. So we're talking about how AI is changing the way we work. Is it changing the way we vote? Two billion people are going to the uh, polls this year. There's a lot of very low levels of trust in AI. Is there a challenge in trying to change the opinion of adopting it? In what sense, sorry? In the fact that there are people concerned that AI is being used to change who is going to be voted in an election, which is making people not trust what they see, AI-generated content. Is, is there a barrier in understanding it in, ahead of adopting it? Yeah, so, so, so th this is an area that, uh, deep, like deep fakes, for example, is an area of, of clearly concerns to society, correct? Like the ability that this technology has to create uh, images that look a lot like other, like real images, is concerning in many ways. And we are working on that. There's a whole uh, investment in provenance. Provenance is a way for people to authenticate media, correct? Similar to what, like, uh, happened in a way that people need to sign, correct? Like, the, 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 the society start using signatures because before I would say someone else told me someone, some, something. And like at the beginning, people would believe. And then it's like, what, how do I believe that? And the whole idea of signature arrived. Well, the whole idea of provenance is similar, where if I'm a political candidate, I, I, I'm, I'm able to sign a, a, my speeches and whatever goes. The same happens with, with, with a newspaper. I, I'm able to sign that media. And that's not going to remove all the problems, but it's going to st start creating the notion that people have the ability to check and verify. Uh, back 20 years ago, when, or 25 years ago, when the whole Photoshop era started, at the beginning, like, there was a, a lot of people would just see a picture and they would believe what was in the picture, right? When Photoshop started, there was like a small period of time where people just, wow, look at this, look at that. But then suddenly people became like there was an education to say, hey, this is possible to do. So people stop really believing everything. If I send you a picture of with me and someone else, it's like, well, how? Like people mm -hmm. not necessarily trust that. Um, society right now still believes a lot in videos and audio. And that's, but, but I, I do think that with, with education and with people understanding this technology, that will not necessarily become a big problem. A great example here is that when we look at the history of, of fake imagery, this started way, be, way before the, the, the computers. And if you look at the history of, of, of the like, images, like from the Loch Ness monster to one image of, of actually Abraham Lincoln that he was superimposing someone else's body, that was likely one of the first images that was used for political campaign. People had 100% trust in these images because there was no way for them to think that someone could fake this. 
when Photoshop became a verb, people no longer believe necessarily any image that was there. And even though Photoshop has existed for 25 years, it's difficult to think that in the last three decades, it has made a significant impact. Like, yeah, it has, like, it has, it has been used a lot, but do we really believe that that technology made a significant impact in some? And the same you can use today, like you can have a deep fake generated, but you can also use Photoshop today, correct? So, yes, I think the most important aspect of this is we need to use technology to help through detection, through watermarking, but also to make sure that we have an education to explain people that these, these type of things can happen. Now, uh, of course, we've been talking here about some of the risks uh, of AI, but there's also a huge potential in how AI can be used to alter and Im really improve our quality of life. Um, a lot of these conversations uh, seem to be happening more on the theoretical rather than the practical side. But I'm curious on your perspective on how do we bridge that gap between AI's potential and its actual practical application with that quality of life lens on it? No, let, let's talk about practical. I, I think they have, we have enough examples of practical right. issues here. So, for example, one great scenario, we have, I have two colleagues of mine that work with me. Both of them are blind. And they use AI every day to help them work, to be part of society. Mm -hmm. We have a world with, we have one, over one billion people that have a severe disability. This type of technology is already making a huge change for them. Right. Let me give you another example. Like, as you likely realize by my perfect English accent, English is not my native. I'm not a native speaker. I think there's no a, way. There's no way. You, exactly. Yeah. This is why you put like your face of surprise. But <clears throat> for me, the 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 fact that I can use uh, large language models to help me write and to correct my English has been a game changer. Wow. Correct. Like, and, and I would say that's also the case. Like, uh, you have uh, the top 100 journals in the world, the top 100 editorial journals, like to for scientific purposes. The top 100 are all require perfect English, but we live in a world where only five percent of the world are native English speakers. Mm. For the last, the other 95 percent, there's a huge barrier. Correct. There's a huge barrier. So this type of technology. Can, is already doing a huge impact in these type of people. Uh, so, so another example I think is, is, is in the case of health, for example, diabetic retinopathy is the leading cause of blindness around the world. You have 500 million people that live with diabetes and a portion of them will become blind because of diabetic retinopathy. You have only 200,000 ophthalmologists. It's physically impossible for these ophthalmologists to even diagnose this disease. And we have seen in our lab, and we have seen other labs that are doing the same, where you can create, when you have AI models that can diagnose diabetic retinopathy with, a lead, with the same accuracy as a very good doctor. This technology is already impacting your life, it's already changing. So yes, I'm, I'm a huge optimistic because for a good portion of my life, I've seen this technology making changes already. So I've got one more for you. Yes. Cultural heritage. How is AI helping in that sense, particularly with what Microsoft are doing? So one great example of cultural heritage is the fact that through AI, we can learn languages that are in the risk of disappearance or have disappeared. And with AI, we can learn those languages. And once you learn the languages, you can make sure that, that the language doesn't disappear. And that's either for 
cultural, for making sure that we can teach the language if, if someone wants to teach, or, or to also even read documents that were written in those languages. That's already happening. Um, another area, and I was, uh, actually Monday was, was I had a great meeting on these, where uh, you have a company that is working with us, that their job is to, using AI and using drones to scan a, a, like the places or, or things that are very important from a, from a cultural heritage perspective. Um, and some of these places, whether it's a statue or a place, are at risk, sometimes of wars, and they actually have scans. They actually have created models of, 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 of statues or of, 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 of areas that have disappeared, either through wars or, or through climate change. And what they are doing is they are collecting this information and creating a model for this, this information, where that is something that other researchers will be able to study forever. Like that will be, that will be recorded in history. And so that's another example of, of cultural heritage where you are working, they are working on studies or on things that are important from a cultural perspective to preserve these and to make sure that we don't lose that important information. And I guess uh, just finally going to you now, Juliet, uh, one of the things we've mentioned throughout our broadcast, not only today, but yesterday as well, it is really this prevalence of AI in almost every single discussion, every single uh, house and panel across uh, the annual meeting this year. Um, this representation, so many of the houses on the promenade are dedicated to tech and to AI. I'm curious on your perspective and what sort of signal does that show? Um, you know, at the World Economic Forum, I guess 10 years ago, uh, this would have been unimaginable, as in you would have geopolitical risk dominating the agenda and so much has changed in so little time. Uh, what is your perspective on that? Yeah, I mean, it's clearly um, this is the way we're going and we just need to make sure that it's it's less about the threats and it's more about the actual potential. And, and do, uh, we were just saying that last year it was all about plant a tree, wasn't it? And sustainable, sustainability and everything. And a few years ago there was the Russia house. That's not there anymore. It's so interesting to just walk along the main promenade and just see all the different houses and who's giving away what freebies. So, so and there's a hot chocolate. There's a the hot Everest, chocolate, yes. Very good hot chocolate. Famous for its chocolate, no? And, um, yeah. If you want to know where the freebies are, just ask me. I've found what them. What have you got? Come oh, on. no, and not with me. Oh, tomorrow. no, what have you picked up? What, did you Tom get can the take hat you on, and the gloves? Tom can take you on a tour tomorrow. Hat and the gloves, I did need it. Uh, Juliet Lindley, Adwan Levista, thank you so much for joining us. You're listening to The Daily on Monocle Radio. Now, 2024 is set to be a year marked by elections. Over half of the world's population will head to the polls across the next 12 months. And the results of said votes will have implications far beyond each nation's borders. But this is also an edition of WEF marked by an escalation in international conflict, leaving questions about how leaders can address risks and what the future of global cooperation might look like. Arancha Gonzalez is the Dean of the Paris School of International Affairs, Science Po, and the former Spanish Foreign Minister. I spoke to her earlier and started by asking her against this backdrop if she is feeling positive about the year ahead. 
I think the most important thing for 2024 is not to underestimate the risks. You know, when you're in the middle of so many crises and you've been in this situation for such a long time and we've been in it for quite a long time now, at least since 2020 with the COVID crisis, the risk is that we do not take care of the risks. We get used to it. So I think we need to focus, understand those risks in order to be able to better manage, to better navigate them. And in what ways are you positive about the year ahead then? Well, I think what has also been proving in the last four years is that when there is a collective sense of risks, when there is a, a humanity realizes that there are borders that are being crossed that would mean damage collectively to humanity, we react. We saw this during COVID. And we are seeing this, and we saw this last year with climate change, slowly probably too slowly, but we it's important to build a shared sense of the risks. So I do hope that we spend a bit of time in 2024 building this collective sense. I certainly do think that the VOS, the World Economic Forum, is a very important place to do that as a means to instill on everyone the necessity to act maybe in a bit more cooperative manner. Well, speaking of cooperation, the theme this year is rebuilding trust, which is a sort of continuation of last year's theme. And with ongoing geopolitical conflicts that is on everyone's mind here as well, on top of said global risks and economic challenges, I guess I'm curious on your perspective on that, on what is the way forward then to manage these geopolitical tensions? And is this the right platform to instigate dialogue? No, I mean, for for sure, we've got rivalry, we've got fracture, we've got power back as a structuring feature of the international landscape and a bit of a zero-sum game mentality. It's what we see on display in the numerous conflicts around the world, whether these are open conflicts like the war between Russia and Ukraine, whether it's the conflict in the Middle East and many other more hidden conflicts that are there from Sudan to Ethiopia to Myanmar. But I think over and above all of this, we still need to create the spaces. We find a way to manage to get a bit of cooperation and I know that some of those listening to us would be saying you know how naive but it's not about naiveness it's about basically making sure that we put in place mechanisms to help people Uh, at least at the end of the day it's all humanity that we we all have in common that now 2024 is a massive election year globally on top of elections and feel free to delve into that topic if you'd like but i'm curious from your perspective what events do you think in 2024 will shape consumer confidence i mean i think there is two big things happening in 2024 votes and bombs bombs the uh, two big raw open conflicts around the world and both have the potential to spill over, to have structural impacts around the world. We are seeing this in the Middle East and how much this is now uh, morphing into trade and how much trade restrictions, the passage through the Red Sea can impact inflation, which will undermine consumer confidence. We saw how conflict, uh, the war between Russia and Ukraine had a systemic impact on food on fuel and fertilizer markets. So first, it's the bombs part that we need to take care of. And then there is the votes part. All these elections happening around the world, more than half of humanity going to the polls, good thing. But with this necessity,
necessity we have to make sure these are free and fair elections and that they are uh, peaceful transitions of power. These two things will be essential also to instill more confidence and therefore to help steer the economy in a better direction. Now, one sector as well that is being highlighted here, particularly with the lens of climate change and working towards neutrality, is the automotive sector as yeah. well, and how mobility really can play a role in this discussion. What are some of the dialogue that has been happening on the ground in that regard that has sparked your interest so far? Yeah, huge dialogues on decarbonizing the automobile sector with this idea that is not just about the vehicles themselves but it's about the whole of the value chain and that it's not just about the manufacturers but that it is about ecosystems lots of very interesting discussions here from uh, auto producers to battery producers to material producers to a dialogue between manufacturers and policy makers also to ensure that the policies circularity, end of life policies, uh, greed support the deployment at scale of solutions so that mobility can be also part of the solution to decarbonizing our economies. And do you feel like in that conversation there's engagement from all sectors, public, private, NGOs, national and local leaders, or is there still some bridge building to happen? I mean, I think there is a bit of order that is needed. This is another example of where international cooperation can help, where standards at international level, at the global level, can help, where policies, best practices scaled up at the global level can help in order to, through this global approach, make sure that we move faster and in a more efficient manner in decarbonizing the mobility sector that the automobile represents. That was Arancha Gonzalez speaking to me a bit earlier. You're listening to the Monocle Daily. And finally, on today's programme, we are joined by Dr. Joe Arvai, Director of the Wrigley Institute for Environment and Sustainability at the University of Southern California. Welcome to the Monocle Daily, your first ever Monocle appearance. First ever, thank you for having me. It's a thrill. How's it been so far at the forum for you? You know, it's been really, really quite terrific. I love these kinds of events where you get to bounce around from platform to platform, from sort of hub to hub and see what people have to say. It's it's really quite invigorating. It's it's eye-opening. You don't agree with everything, but it's uh, it's been a lot of fun. Now, Joe, it is day two of this uh, year's annual meeting. What has stood out for you so far when you compare it to previous years? What are some of the key differences for you? I mean, I think there are two big ones that stand out for me. One is that as compared to a couple of years ago and as compared to other meetings like this around the world, people are not talking about ESG anymore, which is, I think, pretty fascinating. But the other thing is, is that everybody, and I mean everybody, even the pets around here seem to be talking about AI. So you talk about the decline of ECGs. Why is that? Why do you think this must be this year? Well, I think when this came out, it was really an accounting framework that really gained a lot of prominence amongst people in business, certainly in the C-suite. They saw it as a way to uh, standardize how they were reporting um, environmental, social and governance issues within their companies. Um, but there was a bit of backlash. I kind of feel like the the um, econ- uh, sorry, the um, 
the accounting arguments got ahead of the kind of pragmatic measurement challenges. So when people started to ask, how do you actually turn ESG as a, as a concept and turn it into something real and measurable, I think there was a lot of ahs in the room. And uh, as a result of that, I think there's been a lot of pushback to the point where I think sustainability, ESG, those principles still live behind a lot of what firms are doing. But the whole sort of ESG label has, I think, been dumped in part for clarity and in, in part to to uh, satisfy the backlash that people. I was going to ask because it, is it about is it a question about simplification uh, rather than you know the objectives itself? Because in theory, uh, ESGs are a good thing, knowing how uh, a corporate governance happens, how to achieve sustainable goals, but. Uh, as you alluded to there, it was all this red tape that was kind of preventing companies from doing uh, or acting in the right way when it comes to that. So is it simplification versus uh, principles almost? Yeah, I think there's, you, you, I think you're spot on. There's a lot of red tape for sure. And I think that was a big challenge. I think the simplification part though is also problematic, but maybe for a different reason. And that is people really wanted something simple that in reality is actually really complex. So to try and take something that's quite complex, like the governance issue and turn it into something simple, people were checking boxes. You know, how many females do we have on corporate boards, for example, which I think is a fantastic thing to do, but in and of itself, you really need to look much past that to see what kind of impact having diversity on a board actually means for a firm. Now, talking about trends year on year, you're hosting a session on the urgency to reduce uh, CO2 and remove it from the atmosphere to achieve corporate targets. Have you noticed this sense of urgency at all or any change in this field over the past few years? Absolutely. I think that when you look at um, Carbon Removal's Direct Air Capture, which is the, the kind of session I'm in, you've seen exponential growth, both in terms of R&D in the technology, but also companies appearing on the scene that can actually do it, uh, hopefully at scale. Climeworks, who's represented here, is one of those companies. Uh, so I think there's a ton of excitement uh, about it and a ton of excitement within um, within your sort of traditional brick-and-mortar businesses, but companies that realize they need to make uh, a move on carbon. They realize that their decarbonization, their sort of net zero promises aren't going to get them where they want to go. So finding a way to suck CO2 out of the atmosphere is the next best thing. And we are actually interviewing some carbon capture technology while we're here. It's incredibly expensive. Is it ever going to catch on? This is uh, a smart point. If you look at the global carbon price, I think the average carbon price now is at around $4, uh, which is pitifully low. It's way too low for, for DAC, uh, direct air capture, to be cost effective. The price does need to go up. Uh, I think what uh, the good news is, is there's a lot of investment in direct air capture now as a technology for the future. So there's a little indemnification against that low carbon price today. If the carbon price stays low, and mind you, I don't think it will, but if it did, not only would the DAC and the carbon removal industry be in big trouble, but a lot of industries would be in big trouble. Now, earlier in the program, we talked about the prevalence of AI here at Davos and how it can be a positive thing, but maybe you have a different take on that. Can you tell us more? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things I do in my day job is I'm a psychology professor. And one of the things I've seen in our own research is that in order for people to really um, engage in civil society, they need to really respect some norms and adhere to some norms around information seeking, uh, being willing to seek out information that runs contrary to your uh, your opinion, being able to look for more than one alternative to choose from, uh, uh, holding off on making a final decision until you feel ready, and then maybe most important, 
being willing to make a decision uh, that's different to change your mind uh, down the road. I think a lot of people are looking to AI to make decisions for them in a lot of different fields. I think medicine is one where we're seeing really exponential growth. And my worry is by stripping away the practice that people need to make those kinds of complicated decisions vis-a-vis the use of AI, I think is going to be really problematic for society. And I really wish more people spoke about that here and elsewhere. Well, you talked about there about, you know, AI making decisions for people. And that's one of the big concerns going into 2024, because it is a mammoth election year around the world. More than half of the world's population is voting at some point. Uh, This is a recurring theme in almost every single conversation we're having. And there is a real concern that AI might interfere in um, this, the fair and free democratic process and end up making decisions for people, uh, be it through propaganda, uh, uh, deep fake users, or other ways of infiltrating the technologies relating to voting systems. Is this a real cause of concern? And um, what are some of the, I guess, the conversations you've been hearing on the topic that you could share with us? It's a real cause of concern for me, because I think you're absolutely right on all fronts. And one other, which is I think there are a lot of undecided voters in a lot of different um, countries out there who will just ask AI what they should do next. And they'll probably do it, which I think is, is terrible terrifying going back to my earlier points. Um, I think there's a lot of conversation around new regulation, which uh, which I could uh, I think might help stem the tide of concern that you're raising. Um, but I don't think the regulation is moving as fast as innovation in the AI space is moving. To me, this may sound kind of strange, but AI is a bit like a, uh, like a firearm. Not everyone should own one. You know, you should really be um, uh, kind of well-versed in, in what it's used for and how to use it before you have one. Uh, and I really wish people would just take a, a breath with AI and and let the the tech catch up to the policy or vice versa. Finally then, let's end the program on a high note, a bit of optimism. What should the World Economic Forum look like in the future? What topics should we be addressing for a better future? Are you saying I'm not optimistic? <laughs> Listen, I, I think these kinds of forums are so important because they bring together you know, a lot of diverse voices, in, including people who think that uh, this is the last place on earth anyone should be spending their time. I, you know, I, I totally empathize and understand the points of view of the rain and the billionaires crowd, while I also uh, empathize and understand the reasons why a lot of firms want to be here. I, I really hope that more diverse voices like we're seeing here at this year's Davos continue to come in the future and not just come for the sake of coming, but are really invited into the into the big platforms to really not only bring a diversity of of uh, culture and, and nationality and gender and 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 transgender and whatever into the conversations, but to bring different ideas into the conversation in a welcoming way. That would, I think, be a a huge step forward for Davos in five years. Dr. Joe Arvai, thank you for joining us here. And that's all for this special edition of the Monocle Degli. A big thanks to our guests today, Juliet Lindley, Juan La Vista and Arancha Gonzalez. Today's show was produced by Christy O'Grady here in Davos and our sound engineer back in London was Tamsin Howard. The Monocle Daily will be back in London tomorrow, but join us from Davos for the briefing live at 1300 CET from our pop-up radio studio at the Hub Culture Chalet Pavilion. I'm Tom Webb. And I'm Carlotta Rebello. Goodbye. And thanks for listening.